You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to Tea Break Time Travel, where every month we look at a different archaeological object and take you on a journey into their past. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Tea Break Time Travel. I am your host, Matilda Siebrecht, and today I'm savouring a pina colada tea. The sun's out, so I thought, even though it's only two degrees, why not pretend I'm on a tropical beach and have a lovely pina colada tea? Alcohol-free, of course. And joining me on my tea break today is Graham Taylor, who is a professional potter specialising in historic and prehistoric replicas. And you might recognise the name as one of the talents behind the company Potted History. So welcome, Graham. Thank you for joining me are you also on tea this morning i am on tea although, although generally i'm a bit of a coffee man but uh, I, I think the doctors told me to ease off on that so i'm gently gently on tea this morning <laughs> fair enough fair enough i imagine though black tea if you're a coffee person or uh, no it's uh, no? It's, it's, it's actually it's actually yeah boring old uh, sort of builder's tea as it were <laughs> there you go <laughs> classic a classic as well you know we, we all have to we have to go back to the good old builder's tea every so often but uh, so yes thank you very much for joining me as I mentioned, you are, of course, one of the main talents behind Potted History, which I'm sure people are very aware of. You've created replicas for all kinds of shows and institutions and everything. But I'm curious, were you always interested in the replica side of things? So prehistory or history, or was it something that developed out of an experience with pottery? Yeah, it really developed right back when I was a student back, but well, just after Julius Caesar got to Britain, I think it was, uh, in, in <laughs> um, quite a while ago. Uh, yeah, I, I was always interested in the fact that as a potter, I was pursuing a craft which had roots which went far into the distant past. I wasn't really aware at that stage of just how far into the distant past that went, but uh, I started to sort of research ancient pottery with a with a view to utilizing some of the things that I learned within my sort of contemporary craft and that sent me off to reading sort of reports of digs and journals etc and so often with the archaeological research at that time I would find myself sitting reading it going no that's not right so it sort of sent me off doing the research myself and doing the experiments that developed from there I find that really interesting. I've spoken a lot with people because I work a lot with EXAC, the Experimental Archaeology Society, and I speak a lot with people who had a similar experience indeed that they started off as a crafter predominantly, shall we say. So, you know, specialised in a craft or specialised in a technology and then indeed would read archaeological reports and go, they have no idea what they're talking about. (laughs) Do you see that there's an improvement in that or is it still quite a divide between people who know the technology and the kind of scholars or academics, shall we say? Yeah, I mean, there is in, in some areas, although there are so many new courses in experimental archaeology, etc., mm. that have come along. There's a, there's a greater sort of rapport, if you like, between 
practitioners and archaeologists these days. And I currently work with quite a lot of archaeologists and, as you know, institutions mm. that do understand the value of, of discussing these things. So it, it, it's a much better situation than it was when I started off. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good to know. And I'm curious, when you were doing, for example, training in, in ceramics, in pottery, do you learn indeed the kind of historic techniques as well as part of that training? Or is it something that you have to kind of search out for yourself? Well, certainly when I did, it was very much something you had to search out for yourself. Okay. The the whole emphasis back in the 1970s were, really was on the sort of uh, leech tradition of, of pottery having been brought to, you know, the, the current sort of uh, craft pottery having been brought to Britain by Bernard Leach, having popped out to Japan to teach them how to do etchings and come back as a potter. And okay. it, it, was, it was very much this sort of studio pottery ethos, which mm. did to some extent look back, but not to any huge degree. Oh, very interesting. And speaking about looking back, I mean, we are called Tea Break Time Travel, uh, this podcast. So I, of course, have to ask if you could travel back in time, where would you go uh, and why? Oh, lordy. That, now, that, that, it, it is a really interesting question. I, I do remember <laughs> listening, I think it was Julian Richards once asked, uh, he being the, one of the experts on Stonehenge, he was asked that, mm. uh, you know, how he would feel if he was transported back to Stonehenge at its, at its height. And he said he thought he would probably just stand and laugh at how wrong we'd got it all. Yes, uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, this is what I always say at this segment. Usually I sort of say, I'm not sure actually if I'd want to go back because, you know, <laughs> what if indeed we were all completely wrong or it's just really boring, you know, the response and it's like, oh. Yeah, well, well, this is true. I, I, I mean, I think it would be, uh, for, for me, it would be the Bronze Age. I love British Neolithic pottery. Uh, the British, certainly British Iron Age pottery deteriorates dramatically, sort of pre-Roman uh, invasion. Bronze Age seems to be this blossoming of of creativity, etc. So I think that you know, Bronze Age would be the place I would want to be at the time I would want to be. Although I suspect that any of us heading back to any point in the past, our survival would be probably counted in minutes or hours. <laughs> so. Yes, probably. I mean, that's true. I should also I should always add the caveat to this question of you know, assuming that we won't just die as soon as we get there. Contract <laughs> maybe, yes. Indeed. As an observer, as a, in a little bubble. <laughs> but yes, I think it is, it, it is definitely the Bronze Age because you do see the sort of blossoming of people who are obviously exercising some level of their own creativity, certainly within sort of the the later Bronze Age here in Britain. It's uh, possibly, you, you know, we're looking at beaker culture and possibly what one's looking at is very constrained rules in the early, very early Bronze Age. But I think it, it loosens up later on. Okay, that's very interesting because indeed you sort of know, at least I'm remembering back to my good old undergrad days and the sort of classic stereotype that you learn about the Neolithic is, oh, and this is when pottery started and, you know, this is when we start to see pottery develop and everything. But it's in the Bronze Age actually that we start to see the, the sort of more stylistic stuff develop or was that already kind of growing during the Neolithic as well? Not so much in Britain. I mean, we do, you know, okay. we do get sort of what, what they call Peterborough impressed wares and things like that, so, and, and then grooved wares. So, so, so there, is, there is decoration happening happening on the pots, and it's mm -hmm. developing. 
it seems to me that what you particularly see in the Bronze Age is connectivity. You see uh, mm. links with the continent and people bringing new ideas into Britain. I mean, that, really, that's that's in a way what Beaker's all about. But certainly, you can see the links. From where I am in the far north of Britain, we've got influence coming down from what is now Scotland, and that got to Scotland through Ireland, and it may have got to Ireland from the Iberian Peninsula. So, you know, you've got this these sort of uh, maritime links, I suppose, that are being illustrated within within the pottery. Which I always, yeah, I mean, we'll talk about this a, a little bit, actually, in more detail, probably. But indeed, I always love that that sort of evidence that you have indeed that people did actually travel around because I think so many people assume that people in prehistory just kind of stayed in their little place and didn't really go anywhere or interact with other cultures. So uh, I, I always like indeed when you can see something a bit more tangible that shows actually no, like this, there was cultural interaction going on. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and and I mean, I have to say that, that there is evidence for that before uh, before the Bronze Age here in Britain. There's, again, here in the Scottish sort of the English side of the Scottish borders, but uh, up into the Scottish borders, one of the things that's often found from the Neolithic is jadeite axes, and the the, the jadeite that from which those axes are made can be traced back to a single valley in the Alps, and you go, wow. yeah, that's you know, that's really quite remarkable yeah definitely people going on holiday to the alps you know hiking trips and then picking up some jade coming back home yeah yeah Yeah, exactly that's probably how it happened right yeah yeah. Um, but uh great well thank you very much uh, for joining me on my tea break today and uh before we look in further detail at today's object let us first journey back to around 2300 bc to southern england just a stone's throw excuse the pun from the towering monument that we now call stonehenge It's a cold and overcast day, and yet, as we look around, we can see a group of figures gathered around a nearby clearing, all of them engaged in some kind of activity. One of the figures is kneading together a fist-sized ball of clay, working it into a smooth consistency in expert hands. At some point, the clay begins to take shape, turned around and around between pinching fingers and thumb, until it starts to resemble what looks almost like a bell. Once the figure seems satisfied with the shape, they reach into a small pouch at their waist and pull out a flattened piece of bone, which has been carved to resemble a short-toothed comb. Settling down, the figure continues to turn the bell-shaped object on one hand, round and around, using the other to create a continuous dotted decoration with the bone tool, which eventually then winds its way around and down the clay. Once this decoration is complete, the object is put carefully aside to dry, and a fresh ball of clay is taken up in hand. Now, Graham might now tell me that I've got this all completely wrong, but it's in my imagination that I'm allowing myself a bit of artistic license here. So today we are looking at the beaker, more specifically the bell beaker, but we may touch on some other beaker types as well. And we'll get into the details soon. But first, I always like to have a look at the most asked questions on the internet, courtesy of Google search autofill. There weren't actually that many for bell beakers, surprisingly. I thought there would be more. I don't know why, I guess. But um, the most common one that came up was, what were bell beakers used for? I don't know if you can enlighten us on this at all, Graham. Well, I, I mean, as the name suggests, beaker, we, we assume that they're drinking vessels. They seem to be drinking vessels. The lips are sort of formed in a nice way that you, that you can drink from. Uh, of course, most of them we find from burials. So they are sort of uh, involved in Bronze Age funerary practice. And of course, I mean, that's quite important in itself in that 
uh, it does mark a change in burial practice, with, certainly here in Britain. But yes, I think certainly they are drinking vessels and to judge from things like the Amesbury Archer, where being buried with several of them, he's going to the afterlife equipped for a party. Which, you know, we all want <laughs> at some yeah, point. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Take some beakers. It'll save on the, the, what's it called? The deposit that you need to pay, you know, when you go up to the bar and get the, <laughs> get the cup. You just take your beaker with you. <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> okay, excellent. Well, so indeed, that would be uh, interesting to see when we travel back in the past to see if they were indeed just drinking vessels. And uh, the second question that came up was, what does bell beaker mean? I'm not sure what this question means, <laughs> to be honest, but I, I didn't know. I thought it came up a few times, so I thought I'll include it here and we'll see if we can come up with something. Well, I think, yeah, but uh, I mean, bell beak is an interesting term because to me, they don't really look that much like a bell, but, you know, no, um, no. <laughs> sort of like a bell. Um, <laughs> I, I suppose they look like some kind of Tyrolean sort of cowbell or, or something like that, maybe. But I mean, that that is where it comes from. It comes from this idea that these are a particular form of vessel which are bell-shaped. And, and certainly they do mark quite a difference from what goes before them. They're usually more finely made. They are of a size generally, which is, I suppose, usually about a good litre of beer, I think, would if, if, if we're thinking that they were... Really? I didn't realise they were that big. Yeah, some of, well, certainly the ones in Britain are. They're, they're, okay. they, oh, you, makes you, sense. You look at them, you look at them, and you think, you think, oh, you know, it's a pint pot. But when you start to fill the darn things, they, uh, they, they, they take quite a serious amount. So they're, they're um, continental in, in origin. Of course, they're using liters. <laughs> 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 but but and some of some of them, quite frankly, uh, the, the one from Bush Barrow in, in Wiltshire, there, they uh, is massive. I mean, they're huge and may well have been intended to be passed around. I, I spent quite a long time living in Lesotho in southern Africa, where uh, sort of the social beer drinking tradition was to have a very large pot which got passed around uh, everybody in the group. So uh, mm, maybe okay. that was part of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah. yes, I mean, basically, it means a drinking vessel of the very early Bronze Age or Chalcolithic, of course, as we've got now. We've got the Copper mm-hmm. Age because mm-hmm. they come into Britain, certainly, along with the first metals. And the first metals to arrive here are gold and copper. And only later is it bronze. And indeed, I think Bell Beaker, a lot of people, Bell Beaker is indeed the, those objects themselves and those have now been used to define this whole cultural group, because I guess they're just so popular between, uh, amongst this culture. They're, they're so prevalent, shall we say. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is that, that you, you sort of look at it and you go, oh, yeah, this is obviously a cultural thing. But then you look at the distribution uh, across Europe into North Africa. It's, it's sort of patchy. And it, it, it's fairly obvious that these people do not all share the same cultural values everywhere um and yet the beaker is a vital part of of, of their culture i always say here in britain what what you see is uh, in areas of power like stonehenge you get burials with very refined grave goods including very finely made beakers but when you get sort of further out into the sticks, as it were, what you start to see is people who are definitely being buried to sign on with beaker culture, 
but often oh, with a very crudely made beaker that's you know that they've not got access perhaps to the finest makers they're making it themselves or somebody mm. in the house is making it for them well obviously they're dead so, so. <laughs> right <laughs> somebody else is making it maybe but but certainly beakers are used as this marker within the grave of being part of as we said this culture and yet it doesn't seem to be homogenous right across the whole area interesting which yeah we'll talk about this a little bit more uh, later i don't want to take too yeah, much time off yeah, in this yeah. first section but yeah no, no. that's really fascinating because indeed it's such a all-encompassing term you know oh yeah they're the bellbeaker culture which yeah. yeah it's like saying no they're they're european i guess which nowadays yeah. and you're like what does that mean um, but uh, <laughs> Well, and uh, actually, that sort of does cover a little bit the who were the bell beakers. So indeed, they were Euro- Europe. And now I'm showing my ignorance of, of that side of prehistory. As far as I can recall, it was mainly. It, it's mainly Europe. It, it, yeah. it, span, it, it certainly spans Western Europe across into Central Europe, even down to the coast, uh, north coast of Africa. So, okay. uh, you know, there are there are connections right across and, of course, up into touching into Scandinavia. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, interesting. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. So we know a little bit more about Bellbeakers and the Bellbeaker culture, but perhaps we can discuss some things uh, in a bit more detail. So we were just talking about this indeed, that it seems that if we would look at just the material culture, shall we say, so the Bellbeaker, it's very homogenous, it's spread over a large area, but actually you see a lot of diversity. Do you see that in the beakers themselves as well? Or are the beakers quite homogenous according to sort of cultural spread, shall we say? Yeah, here, I mean, certainly here in Britain, in the very early Bronze Age, or as I say, the, the Chalcolithic, as it's now started to be termed, the Copper copper Age that we have briefly. And we're, and we're talking uh, around about sort of 2500, 2400 BC. What you see initially is beakers which are all what what they term all over corded or all over combed and literally they are a bell beaker which usually from top to bottom has had a line of cord impressed into it repeatedly repeatedly all the way down it's a really laborious long-winded process the actual decorating of the darn thing takes an awful lot longer than than it does to actually make the vessel Uh it's sort of this commitment in time 
later on, once we're into the, the Bronze Age proper, as it were, proper bronze range, then you start to see much more variety developing and sort of more local trends and decorations. I think there have been various attempts to sort of put them into a chronological order, as it were. But again, I, I, I'm always slightly dubious, and I, I do feel that what you are seeing, as I said before, there's this sort of blossoming of, of creativity that people are allowing themselves or their communities are allowing them to experiment a little bit more. The basic form of a drinking vessel with a flared rim and a sort of bulbous base it, tends to remain. Uh, they just extend in length, they breadth and slight variations in the sort of layout of the whole thing. Okay. And how do they then, because I'm just trying to remember, <laughs> frantically remember my material culture course back at uni and looking at different beakers. And so, for example, things like the, the funnel beaker, the corded wear culture and that kind of thing, because they were also with a flared top, were they not? Like how, what, what's the difference kind of between bell beakers and other kinds of beakers? Bell beakers tend to be the, the, the larger. I mean, the, the, okay. The, so I think generally, I have to be honest and say funnel beakers are not my area of expertise, although I have dedicated <laughs> a couple of them. I haven't, I haven't done very many. But there does tend to be this absolute standardization within, well, standardization, a, a, a <laughs> level of standardization within. Yes, within. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, always, I, I always think, you know, the memo didn't go out that this year we're having this many rings of cord around the beaker or whatever. <laughs> Which, which some sort of researchers seem to have tried to impose on them. But, okay. uh, yes, I mean, there are differences. It's, it's sort of, uh, I suppose, difficult to verbalise, you, you, you might say. But I do think that th there are strong connections between the corded culture, which, again, comes across from Central Europe before bell beakers, and funnel beakers. There are links. And whether it's that the sort of whole idea is being disseminated bit by bit by connections, one person to the next, or whether it's actually people moving on is very mm. difficult to say. Of course, we always talked in Britain about uh, beaker people, beaker people come to Britain and then and then it all changed and it wasn't beaker people coming to Britain it was just their ideas it was their ideas mm. not the people themselves and then we had the beakers and bodies uh, research project a few years ago which did DNA sampling from uh, bones from burials and suddenly was discovered oh yeah actually it was beaker people who came here and in fact they seemed to pretty much replace most of the native population at that point so it's yeah. I think what it is is it's people moving round and possibly taking ideas with them. Mm, yeah, which then also, as you say, seems to continue a little bit more in within the Belbica period as well. If you see this kind of a bit more diversity in decoration and things like that, I also always find it really interesting. So my own research, I was looking at. I do microware analysis of the last big project I did was was needles, for example, bone needles. And oh. even though they may look typologically identical, I mean, it's a needle, you know, there's only so many ways you can make a needle. But if you look at how they were made and how they were used, then actually you can see regional differences between all these areas. So what might on first glance look very homogenous as, as like a large region is actually, like you say, a bit more detailed if you look at how the sort of microscopic traces. Can you see, I mean, we've talked a bit about the, the decoration, for example, and you did mention that the form does remain the same, but are there different 
kind of techniques visible as well to create the final form? Like, can you say, see different techniques or, or styles of manufacture, or I'm not sure how, how you would describe it? <laughs> no, you, you, there are indeed. And actually, your little uh, sort of uh, description before was, was pretty close. Really. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> I watched one of your videos beforehand, so, <laughs> so ah, I could try. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you you might you might have heard me utter then that the, the, the one of the terms I don't like is coil building, and and, mm. the, and and so often when you go back to sort of uh, uh, descriptions of how these pots were made, what you find is people talking about coil building, and often you'll get a little illustration of this thing that you did at primary school of of putting little sausages of clay on top. I of remember, yeah. And, again. <laughs> and and actually, when you go to the beakers, there's out. That I haven't seen any evidence ever, ever for that technique being used. Yes, coils of clay are added, okay. but they tend to be a much more robust technique in, in that they're using a larger volume of clay. And as you described, the pots are then pinched out. And what that does is it then produces what appear to be sort of quite wide bands of joined clay within the wall of the pot which sometimes come apart, and it's often been suggested that they would make a little part of the pot, put it to dry for a while, add more clay, and because they've dried it a little bit too much, it doesn't join very well. Whereas I don't think that's the case. I think the people who made these were skilled enough to make the pot in one go. So they're they're making a pot, they're adding a little bit more clay. But when your nearest bathroom is several millennia away, you're likely to have slightly (laughs) greasy hands. And if you have slightly greasy hands, it obstructs the joining of the clay a little bit. The pot will look fine, it'll fire fine, it'll function fine. But when it's broken, it will tend to come apart of these joints. So what we see is we see... Beakers, which are the base bottom end of the beaker, is is made as a pinched out pinch pot. It's then had two or three coils of clay added to it to build it up, and you end up with these quite wide bands. And that's generally the technique that you see fairly widely. It does wear vary a little bit, and I think you know sometimes if I'm making a relatively small beaker, I can do it in one, but from ball of clay, I I simply take the ball of clay and I can pinch the whole beaker out from that ball of clay okay. if i want to go a little bit larger or I want it a little bit finer then i'll i'll use adding techniques but of course what we definitely are is we are before the potter's wheel arrives in this part of the world mm-hmm. if you'd pop down to southern iraq at around about this time you'd have found people knocking out pots on potter's wheels but uh, not in this area okay interesting <laughs> And you mentioned sort of the, the, I'm just thinking, I mean, I'm definitely not a potter. And I, as anyone who's seen my various attempts at making <laughs> pots, and I even tried to make the Venus of Dolly Vestonice, to just fail. Ah, yes. But anyway, um, so I'm, I'm definitely not a, a, not a potter. My father is, he would be appalled at my attempts. But anyway, <laughs> but I tried to make a little a cup for myself because I am the archaeologist teacup is my sort of thing. And I thought, oh, I'll make myself a little teacup. How hard can it be? I thought. And I didn't have a wheel. I, I tried the pinching method. I tried the coil method. Eventually, I think I stuck with the coil method and it sort of turned out okay. But the pinching method, when I was trying to do it, I just kept getting, it just kept getting wider and wider and wider and wider. I couldn't get that little, you know, neck, shall we say, that the beakers have have such that little thing. I mean, (laughs) is it just a thing? Why do you think they created that shape? Is it, is it something that actually, if you're quite good at potting, that is quite easy to make that shape? Or is it more difficult to make that shape than a general 
bowl? Like, yeah, how, how does that work? Well, it, I mean, strangely enough, it's one of the things that I encounter when I do workshops with people. Is that I, I always say that clay wants to be a plate. That's what it yes. wants to be. It's gonna, it's gonna get <laughs> a broken wider. plate in my case. <laughs> um, and, and your job is to stop it becoming a plate. That's, that's the thing. But, but yes, there are there are various techniques in the way you hold the pot while you're working it. The and and, and sometimes I'll I'll if i'm working on a bigger pot i'll i'll pinch with two hands and you're sort of pinching the clay and pushing together at the same time to encourage it in in an upward motion to get it make it get taller and taller uh, and the sort of exercise i i often get people to do is to try and make an, a tall straight cylinder and in actual fact when making these beakers what i largely do is i don't try and form that shape straight from the start i mm. actually make what is basically a cylindrical form and then using my fingers inside the pot push the form outwards the interesting thing about that is that when you start to do that you realize that the reach of your thumb over the rim of the pot if you've got your fingers inside the pot and your thumb on the outside of the pot and you start to 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 shape the pot in that way um basically gives you that outward curving flare of the rim the reach of your fingers inside the pot with your thumb over the over the top will be almost exactly where the belly of the pot comes and i i do think that that's how it was made and i do refer to these as reaches and i think they are sort of ergonomic fossils within the pots and i suspect if we were to you know there's a phd somewhere in that for somebody to (laughs) trot off and get as many beakers as they can and try and work out the size of the hands of the people who made these darn things and maybe we think we can then start to answer the question which is often asked is it men or is it women making these pots which relates indeed to my next question which i was going to ask which is you know do we know who is making these pots (laughs) well we don't i mean i said earlier that i spent uh, time in southern africa i was in lesotho for 20 years The wonderful thing in Lesotho was that people were still pursuing the ancient craft of pot making as it had been with them for for a couple of thousand years. And it was 100% women who made the pots. Interesting. Men were not allowed anywhere near the firings, the pot makings, etc. I was allowed there as an honorary woman. Um, <laughs> yeah. The reason I got to be an honorary woman was because I already knew about pot making. So I, I obviously, uh. you know, I was obviously an honorary woman. But it was women's work, making pots. Men didn't make pots. Now, the interesting thing is we hear that we ran a pottery workshop in Lesotho in which we had about 50% men and women working in the workshop. Mm-hmm. And the thing was that we used potter's wheels a machine and as soon as there was a machine involved apparently it was fine for men to you to, to to come and make parts you know whatever but certainly uh, there is a tendency in sub-saharan africa for it to be mostly women that make the pots as soon as you get north of the Sahara, it starts to blur and, and you, you find more men getting involved. And in some places, it's almost exclusively men who make pots. But it's a question which which persists. We don't know. We don't really know who's making the pots. And I think, I think attempts have been made to sort of assess fingerprint size and things like that. There was a, a find from uh, the Nessa Brodgar on Orkney, mm-hmm. uh, Neolithic groove there, a little while ago. 
that had fingerprints in it. And basically, uh, they reckon it's a male of between about 13 and 17. And I have no idea how on earth you come up with that. (laughs) conclusion from a fingerprint but yeah uh, (laughs) that does sound like this is what i want it to be (laughs) be you know you go yeah okay (laughs) (laughs) but especially if you say indeed that the bell beakers are generally quite big they, they sort of fit my hand when I'm making them, I have to say. Mm. And, of course, because clay shrinks as it dries by about oh. 10%-ish, as it dries and is fired, it shrinks. So you, you have to take that into consideration as well in terms mm-hmm. of how big were the hands of the people who made these pots. But, yeah, yeah, yeah you do get some small ones. Although, again, in Britain, it's tended to be said that Beaker burials were male burials. There are exceptions that we are now seeing. And I also think that maybe some of the archaeology of the more distant past, uh, earlier 20th century and uh, certainly 19th century, Mm. um, sort of dismissed the idea that any of them might be female burials. Uh, So, (laughs) you know, we've got wonderful things like like burials where, you know, it's a female warrior, but... um, earlier sort of descriptions suggested that uh, she was the wife of the warrior and that his right. <laughs> disappeared you know and you go <laughs> yeah it's like those yeah. ones with with two people of the same gender or something or, you know sex, biological sex in a thing and they go oh, yes they were really good friends or they, they were just yeah, yeah, brothers yeah, yeah, or yeah. something you're going mm, okay yeah. <laughs> but, so yes. one of the burials that we've replicated the pot from is the Ava burial up in Caithness, far north, far north of Scotland. And that is a very definite female beaker burial. So, you know, there we yeah. go. Yes. So the, the antiquarians just needed to go to Lesotho, apparently, and be told by yeah, the people there, absolutely. no, <laughs> it's obviously women's work, this. Sort of related to that a little bit, I mean, in terms of the way they're made, you mentioned before something about kind of if something's, if they're very finely made or if they're a bit more crudely made do you think there would have been people who would have been kind of specialized in making these beakers or do you think it was just something that everyone dabbled in at some point i know this is by the way a very big question i do think that there are specialists at this stage and i do think that as i say in places of power and i sort of use that simply because you've got obvious places like Stonehenge, mm-hmm. like the Boyne Valley in, in Ireland, although, although beakers don't really make it to Ireland in any great way, and, and uh, Orkney in Scotland. You've got these places that are obviously centres of power. And what you tend to see there is that the grave goods that we do have from those places – tend to be of a higher standard it, it's not universal and 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 you do find very finely made stuff in quite remote areas but what you also see here in the northeast of england for instance is is a lot of the beakers that have been found are quite crudely made mm-hmm. and i think what's happening is is you've got the 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 professionals the <laughs> the experts the, the the specialists who are creating stuff for places where i suppose they can be retained as it were and then on the, outside that you've got people who as i say are sort of signing on to pika culture by creating the pots themselves again you know going back to my experience in the sutu you the, the, Every woman at marriage age was expected to be able to make a decent pot for the house, basically. That, that was the okay. tradition of the Sutu. 
But in each village, you would have usually a matriarch who was noted for being the person you went to if you wanted the perfect pot, you know, you Mm -hmm. wanted a a one for a wedding gift or something like that. And I think that's what you're seeing. You're seeing people who are specialists, not necessarily full-time, 100%, all I do is make pots, but certainly they appear to have made far more pots than you could possibly need for your, for your own use, as it were. Mm-hmm. Which I suppose you have similar things now, maybe not in terms of making objects, but I mean, I'm just trying to think like, you know, professional chefs, but then most people know how to cook a decent meal or, you know, professional drivers, but most people know how to drive a car. Like it's sort of that mm. that idea, I guess, uh, but in terms of pots. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. The interesting thing, I suppose, for me, being in the north of England, is you see this blossoming of the Bronze Age, and actually in later Bronze Age here in in North Northumberland, you get uh, wonderful food vessels and things which are heavily influenced, as I say, by what was going on in Ireland and what was going on in Scotland. And then we move forward into the Iron Age, and it all just falls apart. It's like, you know suddenly something else has taken our attention and i think mm. I, I think it sort of boils down to the sort of things that tacitus and people wrote about the about the iron age brits when they got here that basically they were show offs they you know it was outward <laughs> display it was uh, it was clothing it was weaponry it was jewelry it was painting yourself in patterns and running into battle naked these are all things that you know <laughs> you're showing off and the pots were something that are just that you use them in the house who cares really you know let's let's mm. just let's just let's just bash out a pot so sometimes we sort of imagine that these things are a sort of linear progression of things developing and improving and getting better as they, it it doesn't always it isn't always the case so yeah interesting twists and turns in the development of pottery yeah no fascinating and i always i, I think i spoke a little bit about this in the very first episode back with sarah about indeed how kind of pottery started and everything but i suppose yeah that's also an interesting idea is how it, I mean, not ended because obviously we still have it, but how it became less of a prestigious thing to do, I suppose. Did it at some point then become that? Or do you think it always, there was still always an underlying importance associated with with pottery or yeah. <laughs> well, I think yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm tended to talk a bit about the Iron Age here, but but I, what what you do see in Iron Age burials in Britain is that maybe there's not a lot going on in terms of high quality native pottery, but mm-hmm. they are importing fancy goods from the continent and you know mm-hmm. there are is it i'm trying to think if it's the milton milton Keynes burial i think it is where the grave is full of um roman amphorae which presumably were full of wine when they went in there lots of nice continental pottery and other weaponry but nothing much that you would say oh yeah oh that was made locally so mm-hmm. um so I think again it more souvenirs <laughs> yeah yeah it, it remains important but maybe the skills are not as valued locally or whatever (laughs) yeah okay no no very that's really interesting waiting on a tax return hopefully it ends up in your hands fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30 percent in 2023 if you're in a bind this tax season lifelock can help our u.s-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues and all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. 
You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. So now that we know a little bit more about Bellbeakers um, and Bellbeaker culture, I mean, no more, as with all of these episodes basically the final conclusion is that, well, we can try to infer quite a lot, but actually we don't know that much at all about prehistoric cultures. So Graham, we did introduce you a little bit in the first section, but maybe we can go into a little more detail now uh, about sort of how your experience relates to this object type or or kind of replicas and uh, pottery in general. Do you find, just out of curiosity, when you are doing replicas, for example, or, or selling replicas or, or talking about replicas with people, do you mainly have interest from, for example, academics, institutions, uh, those kind of things? Or are the general public also still interested in that side of things, kind of the replication process and the his- history behind the objects? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we make uh, a lot of replicas for institutions, you know, we, we, we work for most, most of the big ones. And uh, we just Sarah and I just spent nine days down at Stonehenge, strangely demonstrating Japanese German pottery. Oh, yes. <laughs> Which is, you know, it's a, you'll have to go to Stonehenge to find out why. <laughs> but, yeah, teasing, we, teasing. <laughs> we do a lot of work for institutions, but we also, as you know, we have an online shop and, and, and basically we send stuff literally all over the world. And it is the general public. It is, it is collectors and people. We, 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 we actually, we sent a, a Bronze Age beaker to Svalbard not long ago, oh, wow. um, <laughs> which is the first, first time we've sent inside the Arctic Circle. I think I'm not sure. But, okay. <laughs> uh, so, yes, general public and uh, archaeologists who obviously use them as reference and handling collections and things like that because of course the the general public like to know more about the pots i've spent a lot of time doing demos and workshops in museums where i'll sit there and i'll make a bronze age pot or i'll make a roman pot or, or whatever and i'm very aware that the bits of broken pottery in museum cases are maybe not as interesting to the average punter as the uh, flashy gold and jewels and whatever mm. that are in the other case across the other side of the room. Um, they're sort of treated as, uh, oh, you know, bits of broken pot, a bit boring. And I've always considered that our job is to stop them being boring, is to bring out the stories of the people who created these pots, the people who used these pots, and to demonstrate that this is the information this is the life of the average person in that time you know when i when i was at school it was all kings and queens and lords and ladies and battles and and you went yeah that's interesting but actually 
I'm really much more interested in people like me 4,000 years ago, as it were. Yeah, definitely. Oh, I'm very much behind that. <laughs> I'm part of a, a book club, an archaeology book club, and we try to read books or novels that are sort of set in the past or that are involved with archaeology in some way. And the problem is quite a lot of archaeological, especially the thrillers, I suppose, and, and that kind of thing, they do indeed focus on that idea that you have like, oh, this amazing object that you know, was belonged to a king or, oh, this is something that will change the history of the earth as we know it. But actually there's been a couple of books that we've read that have done so well at showing indeed bits of broken pot and being like, oh, and look, you can see here where they, um, I think it was Murder in Mesopotamia we were reading actually by Agatha Christie. And they were explaining in one paragraph how these bits of pot were fixed together with bitumen or something. And, and, you know, and it was really nice to see, oh, this is a popular work of fiction and it's actually displaying everyday archaeology like everyday history you know which is yeah, yeah. I, I love a pile of shirts <laughs> and 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 so often you you pick up a shirt and your your hand sort of falls into the impression of a ha- of a of a thumb or a finger that was made there sort of 4000 years ago and that's a very special moment that really sort of goes yeah okay that's that's a real connection now and that's that's the sort of connection that i want to get over to people when i make replicas or when i demonstrate the techniques or whatever like that yeah yeah and it's also fascinating because like you said i mean when when you first started and right at the beginning of this episode it, you know it, Pottery and ceramics it is one of these things that has been around for tens of thousands, right, um, of, yeah, of years, yeah. um, really, you know. And I mean, yes, of course, the original ceramic objects or the original pots would not have been, I guess, what they are now, because I imagine firing probably took a while to get right. But still, it's it's one of those things that really can connect us to the past, more so than metal or plastic or technology, other kinds of technology, because it's one of the sort of earliest forms of technology. Yeah, it's uh, well, it's the it's the earliest um, uh, synthetic material that we created. It's uh, actually taking a raw material and converting it into something else, which is what we do with clay. Because once you get it over about five hundred and fifty degrees, you've changed it from being clay to being ceramic, and it can never turn back to being clay. Well, no, not unless it's ground down by another couple of ice ages, anyway. Then, uh, <laughs> then we might get somewhere. But of course, the earliest uh, earliest ceramic object that we know of is uh, your uh, Venus of Dolny Destiny that you replicated. <laughs> <laughs> Which was ground down after being fired <laughs> because it came out in pieces. <laughs> no, but I, and actually uh, on that subject, I'm curious when you are working with clays for replicas, because I imagine that also the clay that we get now is not the same as, as the clay that they would have used in the past how how authentic are you able to get basically or how how much working of modern materials do you have to do to try and get close enough to past materials when it's required and when it's needed for things like experimental archaeology where somebody's wanting to take a pot and try cooking in it and look at the residue that's left in that pot to compare it with residues in the past we will actually use what what, what has become termed wild clay i just love the idea of wild clay you know? you have, you <laughs> roaming take, the wilderness you have to take <laughs> But yes, uh, we do use natural clays, but we do make so many pots that it would be impossible for us to process all our own clay from sources all over the country, in fact, all over the world. So what we do is we buy in, we, we, we seem to have 
masses of different commercial clays that we've bought over the over time uh, you know for this project or that project we're then mixing those and often adding back into them the sort of contaminants and the the organic materials or the uh, the grits and things that uh, were that, that, that would have been in the originals and I often mm. think that uh, uh, sort of people on, in Stoke on Trent who spend their lives refining clays uh, <laughs> would weep to see what I do to the clay that they, that they send me so nicely refined. But uh, yeah, so we try we try to get as close as we can, and as a consequence, we have buckets full of quartz crystals and uh, calcine shell and flint and things that all over the workshop. So we, we we do have a lot of materials that we have to work with. Okay, and um, speaking again as a completely ignorant pottery person. So in prehistory, for example, when they needed clay, was it kind of, I mean, you say wild clay, I'm just thinking, was it sort of raw clay gathered from the ground? How would they have worked it? I remember vaguely learning about, uh, not not grog, that's something with rum, uh, or is it called grog? Where, no, no, where you, grog. It is grog. grog. Um, <laughs> where you add in broken bits of, of old pots or, you know, that kind of thing. But how how would they have created their clay or where would they have got it from? Well, I've... I, I think basically most clays that uh, people in the Neolithic or the Bronze Age or the or indeed the Iron Age would have used would have come from easy walking distance of their of their settlement, and, and certainly here in Britain that's usually not a problem. You, you basically over most of, most of Britain there is uh, there are clay deposits, um, and certainly in the north here left behind by the last ice age, and they're usually very near the surface. Modern modern clays, the the, the clays that we buy are often mined from quite deep. Most of the clays that they would have used in the past would have been found very close to the surface. And, and when you're preparing your clay, when you're going to open fire, in other words, you're going to fire your pots in just literally a, a fire. Again, bonfire firing is a term I don't like. I think most domestic-sized pots and beaker-type pots could easily be fired in the hearth, in the domestic home, you you don't have to go outside. I've, I have actually done that in the hut, in the replica huts at Stonehenge. We fired oh, in the past. Um, but when you're adding to that clay to make it suitable for open firing, you need to, a more open clay. In other words, you need more grit in it. And grog is one of the things you can add. You can crush down your old broken pots and add them back into, into the clay. That opens the clay up a little bit. And by that, I mean it creates little channels within the clay through which moisture can escape. Because when you heat that clay up, when it, you've obviously got what we call the water of plasticity, the stuff that makes the clay mouldable but you've also got chemically combined moisture in the clay molecule and that that chemically combined moisture doesn't leave the clay until about 550 c um, at which point it needs to escape the other thing that really helps with that is organic material and i think most agricultural communities neolithic or bronze age who would be would have animals that they were driving in and out of their settlements and taking out to, to graze etc as you did that you would drive those animals through areas where their feet would break the surface and reveal clay and indeed by doing that they would churn it up mix it up and of course they would add a certain amount of extra organic material to the you know, <laughs> it's a very nice way of putting it yeah. <laughs> making a perfect material for making handmade pots so i think that the that, that you know 
we we maybe overthink sometimes the way potters would harvest their clay because they wouldn't have needed huge amounts. They would have needed reasonable amounts, and you know, if you to, to shunt right forward into the medieval period, we have court records from places like Verwood in Dorset that record uh, potters being taken to court for digging clay from the king's highway. Um, <laughs> if you want to know where we get the term pothole from, there you go. <laughs> oh, that's very cool. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, uh, Apparently, they would sort of sneak out at night with a hand cart and just, um, you know, uh, they'd notice this nice patch of yellow clay being revealed in the middle of the road. Let's go for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Unfortunately, not the cause of it around here with us anymore, but uh, (laughs) that would be a much nicer story. Yeah. Oh, okay. No, but that's yeah. That's very. Uh, that's really interesting. So it wasn't, a, and that then also kind of makes sense. Then this uh, this idea that's always been perpetuated in archaeology of kind of pots emerging around the same time that maybe agriculture was emerging. I guess it's just yeah. a natural thing if you're if you're taking your cows out and see some nice clay and think, hmm, yeah, maybe yeah, got, got some time to kill. Let's uh, let's try. Yeah, and make absolutely. Like I mean, I mean, you do get pottery b- b- before agriculture in some places, but not in not in many. It's true. So it it does go sort of hand in hand. Once you're settled and you're in one place, you need pots to store stuff in or cook stuff in. That Mm. makes sense. True. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very true. And going back a little bit to, to the sort of replication process as well. So you mentioned firing um, a few times there. So when you fire, I mean, I guess it's similar to what you were saying about the, the material. So is it in some cases you use the the open fire method and sometimes use a kiln uh is it mainly kilns how yeah. how does that work yeah, I mean, a lot of the pots we make for oh, the public and for institutions, what they want is something that's fairly robust that you can use in a handling collection. You can let the public pick it up, put it down, et cetera, et cetera. And open firing tends to result in something which is relatively fragile. So, uh, yes, okay. when need be or when we're trying to, when we're demonstrating something, we'll do the full open firing technique. But again, we make so many pots that uh, trying to do that with everything would be impossible. So we tend to cheat a little bit. Pots that are required for handling collections will often be fired to a higher temperature to make them strong so as they, mm. they're, they're resilient and can be handled. And then they'll go through a post-firing to actually give them the coloration, etc., that, uh, that the originals would have had. So they do go through a, a fire, but in a slightly more controlled way. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And uh, do you find that there's a, a particular kind of object type or vessel or whatever that is particularly popular, either with institutions or with the general public, for example? <laughs> uh, your good old Venus of Dolny Vesnitsa. Oh, it is. Hey. <laughs> she just keeps coming back. <laughs> But now beakers are particularly uh, popular in terms of vessels, certainly, uh, and and in terms of prehistoric pottery, certainly beakers and and things like that. We do make a lot of Roman pottery. I'm not not sure if I'm allowed to mention the Romans here. (laughs) (laughs) We've had, oh, have we had a Roman one yet, actually? No, I don't think we have, but I have one planned. So we're open to all prehistory here. (laughs) Prehistorians (laughs) tend to hang garlic around their neck and things. Yes, 
but but yeah, I mean, we we sell a lot of Ro- Roman lamps and and things like that, and uh, very popular are often the Roman ones, which are not really entirely suitable for family viewing. Um, I, was, I, I can I can picture them now. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So there we go. <laughs> oh, fair enough. Oh, humanity never changes. Huh? <laughs> and a final question I had was, what advice would you give to people listening in who are either potters themselves or who are interested in getting into pottery, who have an interest in prehistory and who would like to try to make replicas or sort of getting uh, into that uh, not market necessarily, but into that topic, shall we say? Well, I, 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 I could go a bit of blatant self-promotion and then say, go and have a look at the Potter History YouTube Job channel. And <laughs> <laughs> it is a very good YouTube channel, though. I was, uh, like I say, I was looking through it to try and uh, get inspiration for my the time t- travel segment. And yeah, there's lots of really nice videos on there. So I will be yeah, putting the link into the show notes if anyone wants to watch uh, the video. No, that's very nice. That'll, that'll build up nicely. But no, I, I mean, basically, uh, you know, there are lots of books out there I, I sort of uh, came into pottery uh, at a time when there was limited liter- literature available. But even now, uh, things like Michael Cardew's Pioneer Pottery book, uh, it, it's a great starting point. It, it, it takes you right back to the sort of basics of, of you know, digging your clay and preparing your clay and doing that sort of thing. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, you can trot along to, to uh, an evening class and, and do, do pottery uh, that way. But, but I, I do think getting down to the nitty gritty of actually how it can be created. And, and if you live in a reasonably tolerant neighborhood, you can, you know, you can build your own kiln or firing pit or whatever in your back garden and, and have a go at the sort of, uh, at the ancient methods. And, uh, uh, you know, that's the area that excites me and interests me. You know, I started my life making cups and sauces and, and, Teapots, you'll be pleased to know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> lots, lots of teapots in stoneware, wood-fired stoneware. But it certainly is, yeah, it's always been sort of look at the, the ancient techniques, the, 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 the methods that come to us in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I must say, I think that if you want to dabble in experimental archaeology in relation to pottery, it's probably one of the least wor- horrible things you can do for your neighbours, you know, speaking as someone who had to yeah. boil seals and stuff. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Just don't do tanning or uh, yes, or, yeah, or, that or, as well. Or, or garum making or anything like that. That's <laughs> And I do have friends who do both. So there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Or even I had one when I was doing my undergrad, I was doing experiments with seaweed in metalworking. And so I had my whole backyard was filled out with seaweed left to dry and it smelt like the seaside, which, you know, <laughs> is lovely if you're by the seaside, but maybe yeah, not so yeah. nice if you're in suburban uh, Aberdeen. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, we, just, we, just, we just misunderstood, that's all it exactly, is. Exactly, exactly. It's, 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 yeah, it's a small niche of people who understand when you say, oh, don't use that pot, it had a, you know, rat head in it or something. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, yes, mm, yeah, been there. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I was doing a workshop to the Dublin Uni a little while ago in their experimental archaeology section mm-hmm. and I, I, I was midway doing doing a demo and the fire alarm went so we all had to exit and as I left I, my hands were covered in clay there was a bucket of water just outside the door and I decided to <gasps> delve my hands into oh. it and regretted it deeply I really oh. did it, it had decomposing antler in the bottom oh. of it. So it was, <laughs> 
<laughs> Never trust a bucket of water in an experimental no. archaeology department. <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. No. <laughs> well, on that note, <laughs> on that yummy note, I think that marks the end of today's tea break. <laughs> so uh, it uh, sounds like you have lots to do. So I will let you get back to work. But thank you very much for joining me today, Graham. I really appreciate you taking the time, and uh, it was lovely to chat with you. It's been a pleasure, Matilda. Thank you. <laughs> and indeed, if anyone wants to find out more about Graham's work at Potted History or Beakers or anything like that, have a look at the show notes. I'll put a bunch of lovely links up on there on the podcast homepage. I hope that you all enjoyed our journey today. See you next month for another episode of Tea Break Time Travel. I hope that you enjoyed our journey today. If you did, make sure to like, follow, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next month for another episode of Tea Break Time Travel. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.